Good job, man. It was a beautiful song about Tyler. I really enjoyed that and uh, thought that was great. It wasn't about Tyler, was it? Okay, if you have your Bibles, if you'll open them up to Daniel chapter 1, the last couple weeks I've been doing the graduation circuit. I've been to three graduations thus far and been enjoying uh, seeing all those. And as I go to graduations, it causes me to think back on my own years whenever I was a student, teenager growing up. And let me ask you this question. What was what was one thing that you did during your teenage years that required a lot of courage? Well, I, I guess I lived a pretty blessed life, and so I was thinking back, and about the biggest thing I had to do was ask a girl to prom, and uh, that took a lot of courage. After being rejected by about 15 girls, I finally found one that said yes, and that was a blessing. But, uh, you know, I, I think about some of my friends in high school, and about a year after high school, some of my friends were in tanks in Desert Storm attacking the enemy line. And that took a tremendous amount of courage out of 19-year-old young men, young women. Uh, how about this? What was the biggest adversity that you had to overcome during your teenage years? The biggest setback that you faced? Again, in my life, it was pretty simple. I I wanted to run track in college, but right towards the end of my junior year in high school, I tore my hamstring, and because of that, it became apparent to me that I wasn't going to be able to run track at the next level, and so that was a setback for me. But then I had some classmates. I had a buddy, Robbie, who was in a terrible head-on wreck, actually one of the young men that was in our class died in that wreck, and Robbie was thrown from the car. He broke most of the major bones in his body, and that night underneath the uh, stars, he, he barely survived. In fact, they had to do a heart massage on him in order for him to be able to, to survive. So people, a lot of times early in life, go through quite a bit of adversity. And we're in this series right now called The Opportunity of Adversity. Everyone, no matter what age you are, no matter what stage you are in life, faces adversity. And I am confident that if you were to take inventory of your life today, that there are some adversities that you're dealing with. And I have observed that whenever people face adversity, they either run to God in the midst of the trouble or they run away from God. Adversity brings with it opportunity that nothing else can bring. We do not wish for adversity. We do not go to God and say, hey, Lord, just send me a tremendous amount of trouble into my life. But when trouble does come across your path, it brings with it some opportunities that nothing else brings. Adversity can come at unexpected times. Right in the middle of good times, you can find yourself in the middle of trouble. Friday night, I was with my kids and we like to, after dinner, we like to go out for a walk and just kind of uh, enjoy nature a little bit. And so we're out enjoying this. And there's a little retaining wall. It's about as big as this stage. And, and my girls like to jump off the retaining wall and do karate moves as they're in the air. So uh, they're doing this, and we're having a good time. And Karis jumps off, and she lands wrong. And 
Next thing you know, uh, we're headed to the doctor because we're fearful that she might have a broken wrist. You know, in, a minst- in, a, in an instant, we went from having fun to uh, we were in the middle of adversity. Well, it turned out uh, she didn't break any bones, but she did have a, a sprained wrist. And as we were driving home that night, uh, just the two of us, she looks at me and says, Daddy, why do these kind of things happen? Like, well, because you didn't land on your feet, but anyway, that wasn't the right answer. And and I started talking to her, and I got a little philosophical, I guess, and I started talking about uh, the story that Rick Warren tells whenever his wife was going through cancer. And he said, I used to think that life was kind of like a roller coaster. You had bad times, and you have good times, and it just kind of, you were either in one season or the other. But he says, I've, I've begun to discover that in life, you have these two parallel tracks. You have the track of blessing, and you have the track of struggle. And both of those are always there. And ultimately, you have to choose which one are you going to focus on. Are you going to be consumed by the struggle, or are you going to take in the blessings that you also have at the very same moment? Well, today I I want to talk to you, and the reason why I began talking about students is because I want to talk to you about a 15-year-old young man. His name's Daniel. Uh, Those of you that know me well know that Daniel is uh, among my, if not my, favorite Old Testament character. We spent a couple years ago, we spent about nine weeks going through his life. And Daniel faced some terrible adversity very early in his life. So if you have your Bibles, if you are looking at Daniel chapter 1, we are going to begin in verse 1 with the story of how Daniel dealt with his adversity. The Bible says, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and laid siege on it. The Lord handed Jehoiakim, king of Judah, over to him, along with some of the vessels from the house of God, and Nebuchadnezzar carried them to the land of Babylon, to the house of his God, and put the vessels in the treasury of his God. Well, the year is 605 B.C. Daniel is in his sophomore year at King Solomon High School, and he doesn't really have any cares in the world. The biggest thing that he's dealing with is learning how to parallel park the chariot so that he can pass his driver's test. He's looking for a date for homecoming and trying to survive AP physics. But meanwhile, the world around him is changing drastically. Gone are the glory days under King David and King Solomon. Israel was one of the superpowers of the world. But now they were fading, both economically and in their military might. They were also fading in their morals and ethics. Over in the east, on the same soil where ISIS is now raining down terror, there arose a king. His name was Nebuchadnezzar, and he led one of the great empires that history knows, the empire of Babylon. And if you had Fox News at that time, Nebuchadnezzar and his empire expansion would have been the top story on the news every single day. Interestingly enough, if you were to read the prophet Jeremiah, Jeremiah had warned that this day was coming. He had warned the nation that one day they would find themselves in the hands of an evil king. 
But most people just unfriended Jeremiah on Facebook. They hid him. They considered him to be one of those crazy Christian kooks. And they wouldn't listen to him. But then in 605 B.C., the Babylonians rolled into Jerusalem. And Daniel's nice world came crashing down. The Babylonians see potential in Daniel. They began to look for some of the wealthy people, the powerful people's children, those that were uh, beneficial to them. And they saw potential in Daniel. And so they yank him from his home, and they take him back to Babylonia. Everything that Daniel knew was instantly taken away from him. Look at verse 3. The king ordered Ashpenaz, the king of the chief of his court, the chief of his court officials, to bring some of the Israelites from the royal family and from the nobility. Young men without any physical defect, good looking, suitable for instruction, in all wisdom, knowledge, perceptive, and capable of serving in the king's palace, and to teach them the Chaldean language and literature. The king assigned them daily provisions from the royal food and from the wine that he drank. And they were to be trained for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to serve in the king's court. Among them, from the descendants of Judah, were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them other names. He gave the name Belteshazzar to Daniel, and Shadrach to Hananiah, Meshach to Mishael, and Abednego to Azariah. So Nebuchadnezzar's plan was to take the kids that were from the royal bloodlines, to take those that were in noble positions, the sharpest, healthiest kids that Israel had to offer, and he would take them back to Babylon, and he would put them through a three-year program of Babylonian indoctrination. Now, this was beneficial to Nebuchadnezzar because he could keep them as hostages. And if any of the leaders back in Israel began an uprising against the empire, he could begin killing some of their children, and that would frequently stop the hostile behavior. And his thought was that after brainwashing these young people, they could become future Babylonian leaders in the region, and he could in some cases even send them back to be his representatives in their homeland. So Daniel had lost everything his family, his home, his future, his friends. He even lost his name. He only had a few things left. Three good friends that we affectionately know as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and one great God. Now here's the question of our series. How do you respond when you face adversity? How do you respond when you face adversity? Well, some people, whenever they face adversity, their natural response is fear. Problem comes their way, and so immediately their natural thing is to run to fear. Now, a healthy sense of fear is probably a good thing, you know? We need to have a healthy sense of fear. When I was a boy, I, had, I did not have a healthy sense of fear. Anybody have a big wheel when you were growing up? Or was that just my generation? 
Well, I had a big wheel. Well, our, our house, when I was a, a small boy, we were kind of at the bottom of a hill, and there, you know, the hill, so both the side streets were very sloped, and then there was a, another street behind them. And I used to get on that big wheel and start going down that, that hill, but I didn't ride the big wheel sitting down. I, I stood on the big wheel riding down that hill like that, and then whenever we got to the end, I would jump down in the chair, pull the brake, and I'd go sliding across the street in front of me. All it would have taken was one car to come at the wrong time, and I, you would have been out of this sermon. You know, you, know, you wouldn't have had me preaching right now. I, ha- I didn't have a healthy sense of fear. I, I should have had a, a better sense of the fact that there is danger and there, there could be trouble. But at the same time, an unhealthy sense of fear is absolutely crippling. When we begin to to have an unhealthy sense of fear, we start playing the what-if game, and we start worrying about all these things that are beyond our control and worrying about all these things that might happen. And, And one of the things about fear that we all have to realize is that the fear of fear is usually worse than the fear. What you're worried about might happen is usually worse than whenever it actually does happen. But we find ourselves all tied up in knots and playing the what-if game. What if somebody hacks my computer? Or, or, or what if somebody uh, barges into my home and does a home invasion? Or, or what, if, uh, what if I get carjacked? Or, or what if somebody tries to harm my children? Or, or what if I, I lose all my investments? Or, or what if my... Well, I have an ache here. What, what if this is something that's terminal? You know, what, what's going on? And we start playing that what-if game over and over and over again in our minds. And before you know it, Instead of being able to go forward in life, we are crippled by fear. Courage embraces adversity with principle, not fear. Now make sure you understand that. As Christians, whenever we face adversity, we face it as men and women who have godly principle about us rather than running from that adversity as cowards. Are you a man or a woman of principle? Right now, one of the big raging debates is this bathroom debate that's going on in society. Uh, in my family, we've gone through a very painful breakup with Target recently. But, uh, you know, you hear this. And one of the things, though, that I, I keep hearing on TV is everybody's embracing the fear argument. I haven't yet heard anybody on TV embrace the principle argument. That in the beginning, God created man, and he created him in his own image, and he created them male and female. That gender is part of our divine design, that there are two choices there. It's something that God designed for us, and instead of having a gender that is fluid, we are to embrace the gender that God has given us. That's the real principle behind the entire argument. Is gender fluid or not? That's what people are really arguing over. The other stuff is the fear that comes as to what might happen. But the real issue is, do do you accept uh, that God designed us as male and female, or do you believe no, gender is fluid? Christian people ought to be people of principle. And those principles then guide us when we deal with adversity. Now, a second way that people deal with adversity is to ignore it. And you see this on tele- on, on in life all the time, you know. I'll just go shopping. 
You know, I'm having financial difficulties right now. Let's just go shopping. Uh, you know, uh, I'll get lost in sports. I'll, I'll put on my floaties, and I'll stay in the shallow end of life, and I'll never really dig deep on anything or think very much. I'll just kind of be a superficial person and live at the very shallow end of stuff and, and never really uh, just, just kind of hope that trouble goes away in time. And then a third way that people deal with adversity is compromise. Well, things are changing, you know, uh, my circumstances are difficult, so I'll adapt to the circumstances. Now, being a flexible person and being able to adapt to various circumstances, that's, that's actually a strength, but it becomes a weakness whenever you let your principles become fluid. And the core of who you are and your core belief system and your faith in God becomes a fluid thing that you just adapt to whatever circumstances you are in. Eventually, what happens is you adapt so much that you no longer even recognize yourself. Now, Daniel had a a big compromise right in front of him. All he had to do was go through three years of Babylonian schooling and do what he was told. All he had to do was leave behind his former life. He could have had a new great life as as a leader in the empire. That's what he was being offered. All he had to do to accomplish that was leave behind his faith in God, quit worshiping the God of Israel, start worshiping the gods of Babylon. He could have everything he desired. Every day of our lives, choices come across our path. And you have to decide, am I going to take the easy way out or am I going to do the courageous thing and stand for something? Am I going to be a person that actually has some substance to me, actually has a belief system, actually has a core that is immutable, and even whenever struggle comes across my path, the convictions that I have in God and the core of who I am, it does not change because there are some things that are just me. And those things are birthed in eternal truth that comes from God above. One of the saddest things that I see in our culture is I, I see people surrender their beliefs to the crowd. You know, whatever the theme of today is, they just eventually just surrender their beliefs. And, you know, the theme of today changes the next day. This party over here re-identifies itself. You know, every couple of generations, the, the parties seem to re-identify. And we, 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 we surrender our, our thoughts to what we think we're supposed to be and Sometimes we lose our substance, and it's really, it's really sad whenever people become just an empty shell in a culture that's lost its way. You ever heard about the crab spider? Probably not, but uh, the crab spider, whenever an insect gets stuck in its web, it comes over to that insect and it stings its prey, and then it will inject an enzyme in its prey. Now what that enzyme does is it kind of liquefies the inside. And then the crab spider has a feast. And he leaves the outside intact, but the inside is hollow. It's really easy to get caught in the toys and noise of our culture 
and have your soul become filled and melted down by the thinking of media and music and movies and outwardly your life looks like it's intact but inside you've you've become hollow there's no real substance you don't really have any convictions you don't really stand for anything there is no such thing as truth and everything about you is fluid because instead of being a man or a woman of principle you've just become a man or a woman of pragmatics whatever works that's what I'll do. Whatever's easiest, that's where I'll go. Now, there's another option, and that is you can face adversity with godly integrity. It doesn't mean that the pain will be any less. In fact, facing adversity with godly integrity may intensify some of the struggle. But you can decide within yourself, I'm going to be a man or a woman that believes in truth and has some core about me, and no matter what happens in life, I'm going to face it with godly integrity. In verse 8, Daniel, who had lost everything that he knew, determines that he will not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. He demonstrated courage. The dictionary defines courage as the ability to do something that you know is difficult or dangerous. And often in our minds, we think that courage is for superheroes. It's for some of these larger-than-life men or women that serve in law enforcement or serve in fire protection or um, people that uh, overcome disabilities or serve in the military. But the reality is, courage is for ordinary, well-adjusted, coffee-sipping, SUV-driving, middle-class, metroplex suburbanites like us, too. Every day of your life, choices come across your path. And you have to decide, am I going to take the easy way out, or am I going to do the courageous thing and live my convictions? Listen, great courage doesn't begin in the face of great danger. It begins in the sanctuary of day-to-day life. Great courage begins in moments like this, when the Holy Spirit begins to stir your heart and you purpose within your heart that you are going to make wise choices even though it may cost you temporary satisfaction. And you make that decision to decide to decide. I'm going to decide today what I'm going to decide then. Right now, life is pretty comfortable. Right now, life is easy. But I'm going to decide, this is the person that I am in Christ. And so when the trouble comes my way, this is what I'm going to decide then. I'm going to be a man. I'm going to be a woman of courage. And I just pray that when that moment comes, God gives me the strength and the wisdom to stand firm. Daniel determined that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank, verse 8. So he asked permission from the chief official not to defile himself. Can you imagine the nerves in Daniel whenever he went up to the chief official and and asked permission? You ever ask permission from your boss to do something that you were nervous about? Now God had granted Daniel favor and compassion from the chief official. Yet he said to Daniel, My Lord, the king assigns you food and drink, and I'm afraid of what would happen if he saw your faces 
looking thinner than those of the other young men your age. You would endanger my life with the king. So Daniel said to the guard, whom the chief official had assigned to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Please test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink, and then examine our appearance and the appearance of the young men who are eating the king's food and deal with your servants based on what you see. Now, I want you to notice three things about how Daniel faced adversity. Quickly here. In verse 8, Daniel held to his godly conviction even in the midst of problems. Everything would have been really easy for Daniel to leave behind his godly convictions. And people would have even said, hey, it's not really that big of a deal. It's just food. But Daniel had convictions about what he was supposed to eat, what he was supposed to drink, and what he was not. And they had taken everything away from him. They weren't going to take away his faith. And he held firm to his godly conviction. Now, verse 9 is key. God granted Daniel favor. Ultimately, the hero of the story is God, and it's God who granted Daniel favor. But I also want you to notice verse 10, that God still put Daniel through the test. Verse 9, God grants Daniel favor. In our mind, we think, well, there's the favor. It should all become easy from there. But it's still difficult. Daniel still has to go through the test. The faith that he has in God is still put through the test. But God had not extended favor to Daniel so that he could fail. God extended favor to Daniel because he knew that Daniel was going to need the strength and the wisdom to go through the test. So, in verse 14, he agreed with them about this and tested them for ten days. And at the end of ten days, they looked better and healthier than all the young men who were eating the king's food. So the guard continued to remove their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. Ultimately, years later, Daniel's adversity has become a testimony to the power of God. Now, remember what I said just a couple of moments ago. The hero of the story is God. You read the book of Daniel. You read all these Old Testament stories about how God delivers people and how God's at work. The heroes of those story are not David and Esther and Daniel and all these folks. The heroes of those stories is God. Because God was unveiling His will, God was unveiling His glory, and God did something that only God can do. He moved the heart of a godless man. When you stand firm and you be the man or woman that God has called you to be, even in the face of adversity, it becomes a testimony to the power of God. William Tyndale was born in 1495. Early in life, he felt a call to become a minister. And as he began to learn the Scriptures, there were two great convictions that he found himself holding. One was that he, he believed that salvation is not by works, that salvation is by grace through faith, that it's a gift from God, not of ourselves. And so he began joining with Martin Luther and some of the other reformers in the idea that salvation was not going to be found through your works in the church, but salvation was found through Christ's work on the cross and through the resurrection. Well, he also developed this conviction that everybody ought to be able to read the Bible 
in their own language. He was an Englishman, and so he believed that everybody ought to have a copy of the Bible that they could read in, in English. Well, back in Tyndale's day, it was thought that Latin was the holy language. And so you were only allowed to print the Bible or to read the Bible in public worship in Latin. Now, one of the things about that was that the priests were one of the few people that actually knew Latin. So guess what? They could teach you anything. And the result was there was a lot of false doctrine that people were buying into. So in 1521, Tyndale enters the priesthood, and he has these convictions, and he decides that his call is to get the Bible into English, but there's a problem with that, and that was King Henry VIII disagreed vehemently. And so Tyndale lived out his conviction, but he did so in great peril and great poverty. He had to flee his homeland of England and live in Germany and go from house to house because he was always in great danger because eventually he became a hunted man. In 1525, he produced the first English translation of the New Testament. And over the next nine years, Tyndale began working on the Old Testament. He was able to complete a great deal of it. But then in, on May 21st, 1535, William Tyndale was betrayed by a Judas-like friend a man by the name of Henry Phillips who had won Tyndale's friendship only to receive the reward that was upon his head. So Tyndale was arrested. He was thrown into a castle dungeon, a cold, damp environment where the rats roamed wild. And there he lived for 18 months. On October 6, 1536, the guards came for Tyndale. It was early in the morning. He was led outside, crisp autumn morning, and there was the stake. Around the stake were all the, was the wood, powder that was going to be used to light it. And Tyndale realized that he was at the end of his earthly journey. Just before the flames were lit, Tyndale bowed his head, he prayed, Lord, open the King of England's eyes. And then he died. Decades passed. Tyndale's life became a distant memory. People didn't really think of him that often. But then there was another king that rose up. He really wasn't that good of a guy if you study his life. His name is King James I of Scotland, yet he did something that was very good. He authorized that an English Bible be compiled and put together. Eventually, that became known as the King James Bible. Of all the books that have ever been sold, by far, the best-selling book in history is the King James translation of the Holy Bible. What you may not know is that as much as 90% of the King James Bible was translated by the work of a principled man who faced adversity. His name was William Tyndale. And though he died facing his adversity, God used his work long after he was gone 
to impact millions of people with the story of the gospel. And that dream that he had as a young man, that one day the farmer would know as much about Scripture as the priest, became a reality through the power of God. What is the great adversity in your life today? What are you staring at? What are you having to face? Well, how are you going to face it? Are you going to live in fear? What if this happens? What if this happens? I'm just going to retreat. Are you going to ignore it? Hope it goes away? Why don't you just compromise yourself? Don't have any convictions. Don't have any truths. Just compromise yourself and be fluid and just live in the moment. Are you going to face your adversity with godly integrity and realize that through your adversity there is opportunity and that even the great sorrow can become a testimony to the power of God. Would you be so kind as to stand with me, please, as we come to a time of commitment? I'll be here at the front this morning, church. If there's anything that I may pray with you about, encourage you in, it's always my joy to do so. You may feel the need to come and pray here at the front. The stage is open for prayer. Perhaps there's somebody sitting around you that you would like to pray with. The Lord is leading you to make a decision of some sort. Please feel free to come and see me during this next song after the service as well. Heavenly Father, we bow our heads before you. And I realize that as I preach on this subject that there is real There's real challenge in lives that are in this room. But there are some that when they went to bed last night, they could hardly sleep because of some of the troubles they're dealing with. There, there are some that find themselves battling depression, some that find themselves crying at night. That we all have a common denominator of pain. And yet, Lord, I pray that we might also have a common denominator of Christ. Lord, I pray that we might be men and women of courage that stand for something, that have principle, that don't cower in fear, that don't try to ignore everything, that just don't, that, that don't change ourselves just to be popular with the moment of the day. Help us, Lord, to be men and women that have convictions that are found in Scripture. Help us, Lord, to realize that we are not alone. That as we gather on Sundays, we are reminded that there are other people that are living this journey with us. And as we read the pages of Scripture, we are reminded that there is a cloud of witnesses that has gone before us. So, Lord, may we take our lap around this thing we called life and live it with boldness. Live it uh, embracing the fun. Live it embracing those that we love and embracing others. And may we live it with conviction so that when our life is gone we've made a difference and we've made a mark that will last for all eternity. I pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.